Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. As states begin to reopen, we're all desperately trying to figure out what is going to happen next. What are the possible courses of COVID-19? What are the possible outcomes if there is a vaccine? And what are the possibilities if indeed we don't get a vaccine or a therapeutic treatment that actually changes things? Joining me to discuss these issues is Dr. Yonatan Grad. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He's also an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Yonatan, thank you so much for being here. I really hugely appreciate it. And the first topic I want to ask you about is a paper on which you're one of the co-authors that was published in Science Magazine that is a model or a series of models, among other things, of what could happen under conditions of reopening if a vaccine is not yet available or potentially not available at all. Would you start by just describing at the core what predictions you and your co-authors were able to make about the patterns of COVID resurgence that are potentially out there? Sure. There really seems to be only a couple of ways in which a pandemic ends. One of them is elimination of the virus. If you're able to control the spread sufficiently towards the beginning uh, of the virus emergence, you can perhaps contain it to the extent that you can eliminate its ongoing transmission. That, I think, is what happened with the experience of SARS in 2003. I think that this possibility for ending the pandemic now is extremely unlikely, given how globally we've seen the spread of SARS-CoV-2. The second way to end a pandemic is through population immunity or herd immunity, when enough of the population has acquired immunity to the pathogen that you don't see ongoing epidemic spread. This can happen either with a vaccine that can confer sufficient immune protection or through natural infection where that infection elicits immunity. A key to thinking about herd immunity then is understanding what fraction of the population would have to be infected 
and recovered from infection with immunity in order for the pandemic to end. That gets to the notion of the basic reproductive number, a sense of just how transmissible the virus is. Estimates of this number for SARS-CoV-2 place it around three, although there have recently been some estimates that are considerably higher. There was one published last week at 5.7. But let's start with just the notion of this r naught or the basic reproductive number uh, of three. What this means is that on average, an infectious person will infect three other people. To prevent these ongoing transmission chains, then two out of three people would have to have immunity, right? So we would have to get to a point in which roughly 66% of the population was immune in order to see that transmission would diminish. We then became interested in asking, given the broad-based quarantine for communities that had been introduced through these social distancing measures and lockdowns, both in China and in elsewhere, what the impact would be of these social distancing measures of different durations and different effectiveness. We wanted to know if we were to have lockdowns or social distancing with effectiveness of, say, 20%, so mildly effective, 40%, more effective, or 60% on the order of what was seen in China, what would happen? And what would happen if it were four weeks eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, or for a long period. The key uh, intuition here gets back to what I was describing about the fraction of the population that would have to be immune. The extent to which we are successful in preventing spread, so that the intervention, these lockdowns, really diminished transmission, would maintain a susceptible population in the community so that when you stop that intervention, when you lift the restrictions, now the virus would have the opportunity to spread again through the susceptible population. So to the extent that we are successful, we will then see the resurgence of the virus. And that was really one of the main findings in this paper for the one-time social distancing interventions. As there are susceptible people, you know, the virus has no memory. It doesn't care what we've done. It just cares if there are susceptible people around that it can infect. And so we would expect to see a resurgence of the virus. So that resurgence is a version of what people call the second wave. And I take it that what you're saying is that that second wave is going to be a lot bigger than perhaps people might assume, given the success of social distancing measures that reduce the number of people who are exposed. So this is sort of the downside of flattening the curve, is that fewer people have been exposed. And so when the time comes that they are exposed, potentially a lot of them could be exposed. Imagine a scenario, and I think you do imagine this in the paper, where then the government responds to that by saying, okay, we have a second wave coming. We see it rising. We see the number of cases going up and the number of deaths going up. And so now we're going to reimpose social distancing. Any reason to think that you wouldn't get similar effect of that social distancing the second time as you did the first time, and then similarly the third and the fourth and however many times you need to do this? That's right. So it gets to the question of why are we doing social distancing in the first place? If this virus were benign, we would just let it run through the population, right? Because there wouldn't really be a downside to that. But because this virus causes the extent of disease that it does, we worry about the impact it has on the healthcare infrastructure. So the reason for enacting social distancing 
and putting communities in lockdown is to not only try to save lives uh, directly, try to diminish the spread uh, so that fewer people are getting infected and dying from the disease, but also from the effect it would have on our healthcare infrastructure. What was seen in Wuhan and then replicated in northern Italy and more recently in New York is that when we see this large fraction of the population infected all at once, it overwhelms the healthcare system. And then we see things like rationing ventilators and also that people who would normally be able to come into hospitals to get care for their heart attacks or strokes were not coming in. So there would not only be death from the virus itself, but from our inability to properly care for people who have the virus and the inability to care for people who have other conditions, we would see extensive excess mortality. That led to this effort to flatten the curve. Once we stop uh, and see a resurgence of virus, as you say, uh, we would expect that if we are still being guided by that principle of trying to maintain the healthcare infrastructure, then to the extent that it's threatened by this resurgence, we would imagine reinstituting social distancing measures. This led to our consideration of, well, for how long would we have to do that, uh, assuming no other intervention? And that's the question that I think everybody is so focused on. You know, again, assuming no other magic bullet solution, how many times are we going to have to run this same cycle of up and down and up and down? It looks like from, from our models that this could take a couple of years of cycles. And that may be influenced by a variety of factors. Those factors include whether we can expand our critical care capacity. So really what we were thinking about in this paper was, can we titrate to some extent the turning on and off of social distancing to optimize the number of people we're caring for in hospitals or in the, the healthcare infrastructure? And that really seems keyed to our critical care capacity. So the goal then from an intervention perspective would be to try to find the line, which is, how many cases we can handle in our critical care facilities in the hospitals, and then to just bring the number of infections up to that line, as close to that line as possible, and then back down again, and to do that as long as it takes. And of course, how long it will take depends on how high you can make that line, because that's the question of how many people you can manage to infect. But it sounds like making fairly reasonable assumptions about how high that line could be set, you're suggesting that we could end up having to do this again and again into 2022. That's right. And it could be uh, that those numbers are adjusted by a variety of different factors. If we find an effective therapeutic that diminishes the need for hospitalization, or if a person is hospitalized that diminishes the need for critical care, that effectively increases our critical care capacity, right? So it's mathematically the same, essentially, as increasing care capacity. So that can help shorten the duration with which we'd have to go through these cycles. It could also be impacted by seasonality, which is another aspect of the projections that we evaluate in this paper. We don't really know yet whether there is seasonality uh, in transmission of SARS-CoV-2. For some other respiratory viruses, we know, like for example, for influenza, that seasonality influences transmission such that it is more transmissible in the winter than it is in the summer. We see as well for a couple of the other 
human coronaviruses that circulate in the U.S. and cause common cold type symptoms, uh, that it appears they also have seasonality. Using those as a basis for seasonality for SARS-CoV-2, assuming that whatever factors influence the other coronaviruses would also influence this one, we would see that there would be less transmission in the summer, uh, and then transmission would pick up in the fall and peak in the winter. That could also influence the duration of lockdown and release from uh, social distancing interventions. So if COVID-19 does turn out to be seasonal in similarity to these other viruses, that would suggest that we ought to try to reopen going into the summer rather than going into the winter. And that part sounds like good news insofar as most of the openings up that are happening now are going into summer months. That's right. And I think it does raise further concern for the possibility of augmented transmission in the fall and the winter. And I think it's of concern for two reasons. Uh, one, it overlaps with the increase in transmission of influenza, which we already know creates stress on our healthcare infrastructure. So to see both flu and COVID-19 coupled together, increasing together, I think that is something that we, we all worry about. The second reason is actually just one of domestic politics, right? The importance of this election in November uh, is one where seeing a rise in cases and a second wave that overlaps with the election, I think, is something that people have to be aware of and be concerned about. So just to understand what you're saying, which you're saying very politely, but it sounds like what you're saying is you could see a moment where over the summer, as reopenings occur, we actually don't get a huge spike because the virus is more seasonal. But then it starts getting colder, people start going inside, it's October, and the case rate might actually begin to go up pretty rapidly. And then, boom, we have an election in the first week of November, as mandated by federal statute, and the president may think he can change that, but he can't. So it's going to happen in early November one way or the other. Is it cold enough in October to have this seasonal impact before the election? I mean, I hate to ask such a crudely political question, but it seems relevant. How does flu do or how do these other coronaviruses do in October? That's really the key timing. By the time you get to November, the election will have happened. Right. I expect there to be an increase in transmission. The seasonality is not an on-off process. It's one that fluctuates with the season. So as we start to move into uh, the fall and winter, I do worry that there will be increased transmissibility and a rise in cases. And I think even as this is an issue that we can't know for sure at this point, it is nonetheless one worth preparing for just in case. It's concerning enough that being able to have the option to vote by mail seems critical for an election where there may be risks, as we've seen in Wisconsin in the primaries, to standing in line when there are serious respiratory viruses in circulation. There's a fascinating counterintuitive result of this, which is there's been a lot of talk about would Donald Trump try to delay the elections. If Donald Trump were to listen to this podcast and read your paper, he ought to not under any circumstances even think about delaying the elections, because if you delay the elections, there might be a lot more COVID-19 cases as the weather gets colder. Whereas in the first week of November, it's entirely possible that that might be going on, but we wouldn't have seen it yet. I think it's so tough to speculate even months out at this point, frankly. I, I think 
with all of the variation in uh, social distancing interventions across the United States, it's very hard to predict what the seroprevalence will be and what the risks for recurrence will be by community. Different states and different regions have taken very different approaches to how to manage the response to, to COVID-19. Some seem to have adopted the Boris Johnson phrase, take it on the chin. Uh, others are trying to flatten the curve, and yet others are trying to crush the curve. And by crush the curve, what I mean is really prevent any transmission through a combination of social distancing interventions, contact tracing, and other means. So it's hard for me to say exactly what the dynamics will be come September, October, or November, because those in part depend on the fraction of the population that remains susceptible. And that right now is just so hard to predict. We'll be back in a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. You know, Tom, one of the findings that really struck me in your paper was the finding that 
if immunity to SARS-CoV-2 is not permanent, it's likely to enter into regular circulation, sort of like the flu comes around every year. There's something a little terrifying about that because the idea that we'll have SARS-CoV-2 with us in this form for a long time is kind of world-changing. But hidden in there is a fascinating assumption that I think opens something that I did not understand at all, and I wonder if you would share with us. And that is, what does it mean to say that if the immunity is not permanent? I tend to think, I think a lot of non-physicians tend to think that either you do become immune after you're exposed to something and have antibodies, or you don't become immune. But I'm sensing that that's not the right way to think about it. Immunity, we like to think of as uh, something that is lifelong sterilizing protection, that you get infected with something, you develop immunity to it, and you are protected uh, against infection with that particular pathogen for the rest of your life. This is one of the concepts we think about for vaccines generally. And it's in some ways how they're pitched. Although, you know, from your own experience, if you go in for all of your recommended vaccines, as one should, uh, you might have wondered why it is that for some vaccines you get several doses, right? So, uh, every 10 years, for example, you're supposed to get an updated tetanus shot, right? So uh, it gives a sense, even just the fact that that happens, that immunity is not an all or nothing. Uh, it is not a one or a zero. It is something that can change over time. And also that it is not necessarily as if you have some kind of invincibility shield. We can think of immunity as being in a, a few different categories of things. Does immunity prevent you from getting infected? Does immunity prevent you from developing severe manifestations of infection, um, should you happen to get infected? Uh, and could immunity or different elements of immunity help prevent ongoing transmission, so make you less infectious to others? These are the, also the different ways in which we think about the potential outcomes of vaccination. So for SARS-CoV-2, uh, what we wondered about was whether immunity might wane over time. There was a study with one of the common cold type coronaviruses where military recruits were exposed to one of these viruses and then a year later exposed again. Uh, and they could still become infected, although they had less symptoms. So it seemed as though even if they were able to recover and develop an immune response to the initial infection that let them clear it, that immune response was not of sufficient strength and duration that they could not, a year later, again become infected, although it was, for many of them, enough to limit the extent of symptoms. We see this with many pathogens. One of the reasons why influenza is such the challenge that it is, is in part because uh, immunity to flu seems to change. Flu itself seems to change. So the pathogens themselves may evolve in response to the immune pressure from the human populations. We don't know whether this will be the case uh, with SARS-CoV-2. That is yet to be determined as well. So there are a variety of factors at play, both in the dynamics of the human population and individual level immune response, and in the evolution of the pathogen as well. So the takeaway then is that if exposure to the virus creates an immunity that is time-bound, or that is not capable of completely eliminating the chances that you get the disease later on, but just weakens the case that you get, 
or if a vaccine does either of those same sorts of things, then we're going to get very possibly an annual COVID scare. And that could last, I take it, indefinitely, because if we're not talking about total immunity, then herd immunity is, in a sense, a misnomer. The herd will never be completely immune because no one is on this theory completely immune. They're just partially or immune in some time-bound way. And then it will have to become something that we're going to have to manage going forward without particular end, even if there is a vaccine, again, depending on how the vaccine operates. Yes. So if we get a vaccine, and I want to add a note of caution here that it is not a given, even with the recent positive news from the phase one of the Moderna trial, it it does not seem to me a given that we will have an effective vaccine for sure. Uh, I just point out using the example of HIV, a very different virus to be sure, but nonetheless a cautionary tale. We have been trying to get a vaccine for HIV for 30 years and we still don't have one. So just to keep that in mind, I hope we get one for SARS-CoV-2 and get one quickly that is highly effective and that does induce long-lasting sterilizing immunity. But if we don't, then you're absolutely right. We are going to be looking at dealing with SARS-CoV-2 as another of the seasonal respiratory viruses. It will join the ranks of influenza, para-influenzas one through four, respiratory syncytial virus, metanumovirus, the other coronaviruses, rhinovirus. There are a whole panoply of respiratory viruses that cause everything from common cold to very severe outcomes, including death, that come through the human population regularly. And it may be that SARS-CoV-2 will, will join that group. Is there any way to know whether a particular type of immunity, whether it's naturally occurring or whether it's vaccine-induced, will last over time other than waiting over time to see what happens? I mean, is there any way to pre-figure that out? Yeah, I, uh, no, not, not that I know of. Uh, I think it is something where it really takes time to figure it out. Part of it is, you know, what is the robustness of the immune response and then watching what happens even over short periods of time to see whether antibody levels rapidly decay or, or are maintained. What am I not asking you? What are major, major points that you think are not being sufficiently discussed in public right now about, broadly speaking, the issues that we've been talking about? I think that there are a few key points that we haven't discussed that we should be thinking about. One, we've talked about vaccines, but we have not talked about therapeutics. I think therapeutics really give us the best and probably closest off-ramp. If we had effective drugs that could diminish the possibility of severe disease, that could really treat and cure infection with SARS-CoV-2, the need for a vaccine would go down tremendously. We could manufacture these drugs, especially if they were oral drugs. Of course, there are all the issues with resistance. And I'll just say the reason that I haven't asked you about that is that, um, and we've talked about this extensively on the show on other occasions, remdesivir does seem to be producing some appealing results, but the numbers that are reported thus far, at least in the NIH study, were not world transforming. It was mortality from 11.6% to 8%, which is meaningful, but is not 
fundamentally transformative and reduction of time in hospital by some number of days. Also great, but not transformative. And I understand that this could be combined with other antivirals and potentially something could be cobbled together. So we're not ruling it out in any way. But it seems as though some of the initial enthusiasm that we would find a therapeutic that would be the magic solution has waned in recent weeks. I think that enthusiasm should needs to, um, it's too easily swayed mm-hmm. and endurance and a continued investment uh, is required. We should not expect that our first shot on goal will go in. We will need to continue that investment. If anything, I would say there's encouragement that we were able to take a drug off the shelf and show that it has some antiviral activity that is clinically meaningful. Investing further in finding other drugs that have more specific activity or that are more clinically effective, I think is is hugely important. What about monoclonal antibodies? We had Akiko Iwasaki from Yale on the program, and she said, you know, no one is paying sufficient attention to this. And she even expressed some puzzlement about why more people aren't focused on monoclonal antibodies. Yeah, I think monoclonal antibodies most likely given in combination. So not just one anti-SARS-CoV-2 antibody, but several that you could administer as a cocktail or in combination with remdesivir, for example. That I think is a super interesting therapeutic angle. I think one challenge with monoclonal antibodies is that they're very expensive right now. Uh, and another challenge is that they are hard it seems, to manufacture at large scale. So I think that it's an extremely exciting and important therapeutic direction, but I'm not sure that it's the answer for the broadly available therapeutic that would really give us an off-ramp. So we should be talking a little bit more about therapies. Uh, What else should we be talking about? We should also be talking about, or really trying to get a better handle on the age distribution of infectiousness, and susceptibility. How much of a role are kids really playing? I think this remains an open question. We've gotten some data, but we need a lot more. Are kids getting infected to the same extent as the rest of the population? Are they as infectious once infected as the rest of the population? This has big implications for going back to school. Uh, and how we want our population to re-engage and emerge from the hibernation we're in now, do we try to restructure our communities in significant ways? Or are we able to let kids go back to school without concern because they don't play a big role in transmission? Right. I think this is, from a variety of perspectives, a really important question. Clinically, I think there are still... Uh, questions that are coming up. Why is it that this pathogen is causing a hypercoagulable state where we're seeing clots form both in the venous and arterial uh, circulations? Why is it that we're seeing these unusual uh, inflammatory conditions in some children? There are a variety of clinical questions that we're just really starting to pick up on and engage with. I think those are also going to be hugely important to understand. So there's the the pathogenicity of the virus, the biology uh, of the interaction between the host and pathogen, where I think we still have quite a bit to learn. And by understanding those features, perhaps develop 
better interventions to prevent the severe sequelae of COVID-19. Thank you for those steers. Those are all good stories for us to continue to watch. And thank you for your clear analysis. And thank you for the work that you're continuing to do in this crisis. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for the conversation. It's been very fun. So many fascinating things came out of this interview with Jonathan that I tried to keep a running tally. And now looking at my notes, let me try to capture what I walked away with. First, in the absence of a vaccine becoming available very, very soon, we're likely to see a recurring pattern of up and down, up and down of COVID-19. As the disease recurs, we respond with social distancing and we lift the social distancing. That could last at least into 2022. Second, COVID-19 may well turn out to be seasonal. And if it does turn out to be seasonal, that will have a big impact on how the disease comes back and when. In particular, it's likely to recur in the fall as it begins to get colder. That might turn out to be good news for Donald Trump. Third, depending on how immunity works, whether it's conferred by nature or conferred by a vaccine, it's entirely possible that we may see SARS-CoV-2 as actually turning into a permanently recurring disease that comes back again and again and again. Fourth, and perhaps I should have known this already, but I certainly did not, immunity is not an on-off switch. You're not either entirely immune to a disease or entirely not immune to it. Instead, it's a continuum operating on multiple different dimensions. How long it lasts can vary, whether it's lifelong or partial. It can affect whether you transmit the virus more easily to another person. It could affect whether you get the disease to a lesser degree than you otherwise would. All of these factors turn out to vary from virus to virus and from antibody reaction to antibody reaction. Last, but certainly not least, we're not going to know right away whether immunity that is conferred lasts or doesn't. And that will be true whether it's natural immunity or vaccine immunity. The only way to find out how well it lasts will be to wait and to see. That's a lot to process, and I'm still trying to process it. But as you know, here on Deep Background, throughout the corona crisis, our goal is to bring you unvarnished, the opinions of experts, so that our learning process can be shared with you as well. Until the next time we speak, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zoe Wynn, and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And one last thing, I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter about this episode or the book or anything else. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. 
Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.